first reading is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. It's in the Church Bible, 1162, page 1162. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. And reading is taken from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, and then 11b to 32. Um, and it can be found on page 1048 of the Church Bibles. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him safe back, safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I would celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, said the father, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man who had two sons. So here we have what is arguably the most famous parable Jesus ever told, the parable of the lost son. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It's hard not to be moved reading it, hearing it being read. And my aim this morning is to reveal to you that it's not really about these two sons, but it's all about the father and his incomparable, wonderful, incredible grace, which presents us with two challenges. So let's go through this parable with, I pray, fresh ears today. I know it's familiar to a lot of us, but let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit for fresh ears, okay? All right. So anyone here got two sons? Okay. A few of you got two sons. Excellent. Two sons on the screen. I've got two sons. I've got an Elijah and a Jeremiah. Elijah is uh, almost 16. Jeremiah is almost 10. There's over six years between them. I love them dearly. And when they want to, they can really wind each other up. <laughs> I mean, really wind each other up. Issues of justice, issues of fairness, they dominate the airwaves in our household. I've also been blessed with a daughter, Kezia. She's in the middle. She's my princess in the middle. She keeps those boys in line. You <laughs> do not mess with Kezia. This man had two sons, and the younger son asks him, Father, give me my share. Give me my share of the estate. Now, thinking about what parents often do for their kids these days, it seems like a fair enough demand, doesn't it? You know, why wait till you're dead to pass the money on? You know, give the inheritance now. Make sure you don't die for seven years afterwards, and then there'll be no inheritance tax, you know? Why? That's what we do these days. Yet in the culture of Jesus' day, even this phrase, Father, give me my share of the state, was tantamount to saying, Father, you're dead to me. I want what's mine now. It's an audacious request from the younger son. It's a cutting, unkind, arrogant request. It's two fingers raised at his own family. Culturally, and according to the Lord Moses, the elder son he would stand to inherit two-thirds of the estate and the younger one-third upon their father's death. Occasionally, fathers took early retirement and they divided up the estate before they died. 
giving their capital to their boys and just living off the income of the land only. But mainly, it was upon dying in the culture that this would all take place. What's more, it wasn't this young pup's place, right, to initiate any of this. That was the elder son's job, as and when the time came. Now, as a parent of a 15, nearly 16-year-old boy, the other morning I was, uh, I was doing the usual. I was waiting outside the bathroom, <laughs> praying it would soon be vacant. And after what I felt like was two years, and trying hard to scrape the barrel of my waning patience, I gently called out to Elijah, how's my lovely boy this morning? And he said, your favorite boy. Ooh, okay. And he often jokes that when you die, Dad, <laughs> when you die, <laughs> when you die, Dad, that's a funny one, I'll get the double portion over Kezi and Jez, won't I? Hmm, sure thing, Elijah. Yeah, I'm a Church of England priest, so double of nothing will, of course, be <laughs> The father, though, he divides up the estate between them whilst he's alive, and he gives his younger son his share of the capital. Not long after that, Jesus says, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The son then, he doesn't hang around. He spends some time, but not lots, wondering what to do with his capital and clearly liquidates his assets somehow. And with this huge wad of cash in his pocket, he decides to get as far away as possible from his family, heading to a distant country. Again, this reveals his disdain towards his family, doesn't it? To all the workers on the estate, in fact, and to the whole community that's raised him. This son has grown up in a privileged environment. He's had everything he could ever ask for. But when you don't know you're born, it's never enough, is it? He's entitled. He doesn't appreciate the hand life has dealt him. And anyway, he's now got plans. He's going to live his best life. Yet in that distant land, he blows it all on loose living. It's Vegas, it's Monaco, it's parties, yachts, restaurants, flash cars. Until, of course, the double whammy. The double whammy that hits. He runs out of cash. There's a severe family, uh, famine in the land. A severe famine. And at every cash point he visits, it says, your card has been declined. So desperate times call for desperate measures, don't they? And this boy's not stupid. He hires himself out to a foreigner, a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So let's take stock then. In the short space of time, since he asked for his share of the estate, a lot has happened. But he's now broke. So now, as a Jewish lad, he's working for a Gentile farmer, feeding the very animals the Jews considered unclean. He's feeding pigs. Very quickly, this entitled rich kid has sunk to an all-time low. The famine is so severe and his hunger is so burning that he's desperate. He longs to eat the food that he's giving the pigs. But Jesus says, no one gave him anything. Wow, he's exploited it's a zero-hours contract with literally no lunch breaks. His new employer must have thought, you know, this kid's a Jew. I don't particularly care for him. He's not one of us. 
Why should I give him food as well? It's a famine. You know, I haven't got, I haven't got anything to give him. And it can take a while, can't it, to come to our senses, to stop and reflect on our choices in life and where they've led us. Sometimes it takes the extremes of life to jolt us back into perspective to realize just how good we once had it. When he came to his senses, Jesus says, the son starts to compare life here among the pigs' will with life back home. Man, this is pretty rank. My father's servants have a cushy deal compared with this. They've got food to spare, nice food, <laughs> delicious food. Occasionally there's even a barbecue. Wow, I miss beef so much. I'm so hungry I could die. It's so bad that he's sitting, dreaming of the servant's food. He's got to the point where he's thinking, if I were to go home, I'm probably going to be disowned now. So I'm not going to be sitting around the family table anytime soon, but I need to do something. And so rolling yet another pig pellet around in his fingers, he formulates a plan to return to his father. I'll ask his forgiveness. I'll, I'll say that I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. That's what I'll do. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll ask to be made like one of the servants. And I'll try as best as possible when I go back to avoid my brother. I don't want to bump into him first. And of course, what we see in this lad reveals what's probably been the issue all along. He has a wrong view of his father. He assumes he knows how his father's going to react. He's forgotten all his father has done in the first place. To go against culture and against the conventional wisdom of the day to give his son the inheritance that he's demanded. You know, there's a, a little verse in the book of Sirach, which is in the, uh, the Jewish intertestamental literature. And it says this, it says, To son or wife, or brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live, and do not give your property to another in case you change your mind and must ask for it. Wow, so his father has made a, taken a big gamble here. No one would have really done that in, the, in his day, but he's, he's taken a huge risk on his son, a huge risk on him not squandering his inheritance and sitting amongst the pig's will. So he knows this lad. He knows what he's done. I've let him down. I've let my family down. I've seriously let myself down. But, of course, he's, he's got no idea of how his father truly feels towards him. So in verse 20, he begins the hard yards of returning home. It takes guts, doesn't it, to admit defeat. It's hard to turn around and to come home wherever home is to you. It takes guts to say sorry to those who we've hurt. I'm always moved by that line in uh, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. I read it every year because I love it. It just touches my heart. And um, on Christmas Day, you'll know that the reformed character of Scrooge is delighted that he's been given a second chance to live again. But then he spots the man from the local charity coming towards him who he was really rude to on Christmas Eve. And he thinks, oh my goodness, <laughs> here comes that guy. I didn't really want to see him today. Um, but then Dickens writes, it sent a pang across his heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met. But he knew what path lay straight before him, 
And he took it. He said sorry to the guy. Someone apologized to me recently after church. The week before, they'd said something really quite unkind to me. They'd, you know, had a bee in their bonnet and they let me have it. You know, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, didn't roll over and take it. I gently pushed back and I thought, okay, well, we're not getting anywhere here. So prayed for him during the week. The following week, I was standing at the door at the end of the service and he came up to me. He said, I, I've been thinking about what you said last week and I'm just really sorry for how I spoke to you. Really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I've got issues with this, with this particular thing, but I shouldn't have taken it out on you. And I said, it's okay. That's all right. God bless you. I forgive you. And, you know, isn't that what we're all about here? It's what we should be about. You know, the family of God, the um, reconciliation that we heard about in 2 Corinthians. You know, taking the hard yards home in terms of repairing relationships, seeing the path that lays ahead of us and, and actually being brave enough to walk it and saying sorry when we need to. Once a day, I bet the younger son's father would stand and watch to see if his lad would return. Maybe, maybe more than once, every time he went past the window perhaps, to the annoyance of the elder son, why is he always looking for that brother of mine? Why is he so obsessed with looking out for him? Maybe the father would stand there just scanning the horizon. Is that person my son? No, it's not his gate. I know his gate. Is that, I mean, is, is that him? No. Stupid me. <laughs> it's a tree. Is that him? Is that him? No. Oh, I hope he's okay. Please, God, let him be okay. But Jesus says that day, that wonderful day, surely came. The old guy is scanning the horizon one morning. That's him. Is that him? Yeah. Oh, my goodness, that's him. That's how he walks. I know how he walks. That is him. That's him. He's back. Come on. Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Wow. You see, that's no angry father there, is it? That's a broken-hearted father who's just been given back the greatest gift ever. He's been given back his child's life. And I love this. He does what no respectful Jew would ever do. He runs to his son. Old men don't run, do they? <laughs> old Jewish men didn't run. Not old respectful heads of the estate. They don't want to be seen looking silly by running. He'd have to hitch his robe up to do that. Old Jewish men didn't hitch their robes up. They didn't show their legs to anyone. You don't do that. He doesn't give a monkeys about that stuff, does he? He's just seen his son. His son is back. And notice he runs to him, to that boy, to escort him back, to protect him from the religious zeal and the cultural anger of the community. Because they would have been livid at that boy. 
In the Old Testament, there was this law in Deuteronomy about rebellious sons. I'll let you read it. (laughs) The elders of the community could have had that voice stoned to purge the evil from among them and to serve as a warning sign to others not to do the same. Remember, this was a, a different culture, a different time. It was expected of you that you respected your family at all times. It was not like we see today. The community played its part in maintaining the culture of honor within families. And the father runs. He runs to him. He throws his arms around him and kisses his boy. Such public displays of emotion, they wouldn't have gone down well with the community watching, the people tutting as they saw this old man hitching up his robe, running to his boy. Utter relief that he's safe and he's well and he's home. But I love this next bit because this greeting has clearly overwhelmed the poor lad. He's absolutely stunned by the fact that his father's run to him and thrown his arms around him and won't stop kissing him. That wasn't part of the script, was it? That wasn't part of the script that he composed during the pigsty sessions when he made his way back. As his father squeezes him tight, he wheels out by now a well-rehearsed line. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father is not having any of that nonsense. His son's back. It is time to celebrate. And so quick, he orders his servants. Best robe, now. Yep, that one, the one in my study, in the closet. Yep, go and get it. So off the servant scampers to go and get it. Oh, come back. Um, uh, the ring, the ring's on my desk, the signet ring. Go and get the signet ring too. Oh, and uh, my boy is not going to go without sandals. So you bring some sandals back with, him, with you now. Come on, I've got some celebrating to do. Party time. I'm going to... I'm going to walk him back. I'm going to walk my son back with honor, and I'm going to walk him back with pride. I'm going to walk him back in the attire of a son, because he's my son, and he's home. Oh, and tell Chef that uh, tonight we're having a barbecue. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the fattened calf. Yeah, we've been keeping him for a while, but we're having the fattened calf. It's beef tonight. I know you love beef, son. Come on. And he tells everyone, everyone who's listening, why he's doing this. For this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. It's beautiful. This parable builds on the two which precede it, doesn't it? The lost coin and the lost sheep. The coin and the sheep They couldn't find themselves, could they? You know, a lady and a shepherd search frantically for those precious items. But this parable, it differs. It's about three human relationships. It's why it moves us so much when we read it. It's about God respecting, and it's about God honoring our free will as human beings. And one of the greatest gifts God ever gives us is the ability to make our own choices. We can choose to stay lost from God if we want to. All the father could do here was hope for his son's return. The great risk that God takes with every single 
one of us is that when we're born, we will choose, hopefully, to love him back. And that's real love. That's love in all its vulnerability. I wonder, are you in the place of the younger son today for whatever reason? Maybe you've traveled far from God and life hasn't quite turned out as you'd hoped it would. It started out great, but, you know, you feel far from God now. Today then, whether you've run away from God geographically or you've run away from him in your heart, whether you've sat here week on week feeling so distant from God, or whether today is your first visit back to, or even your first visit in a church, God says to you, he says, come back. Come back to me. Come back to me. Run to me. Come back to me in your heart, and in fact, you'll find me running to you. We mustn't have a wrong view of God. I feel God is saying that today to us. Don't have a wrong view of me. I won't punish you. I won't think less of you. I won't demote you from my family. You'll always be my child if you choose to be. Come back and see how I want to treat you. I love you. Every day I scan the horizon for you. Because I want you back where you should be with me, home, come back. Why did Jesus tell this story and to whom? It was, as we heard right at the start, a story told to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were grumbling because Jesus was hanging out with society's outcasts, the tax collectors and the sinners. He challenges their take on who's out and who's in, in the kingdom of God. He challenges their lack of compassion for other people. This is grace challenging empty works-based religion. You see, what the Pharisees and teachers of the law didn't get was that we can't earn God's approval by dutifully obeying religious laws. That's not relationship. And it's hard not to see the older son in this story as representing this kind of mindset. You know, duty is enough. And we resent any show of God's mercy and grace to those not as dutiful as us. And when the older son is told excitedly by one of the servants, your brother has come back. He's like, oh, he's back, is he? All right. And your father, your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. What? The fattened calf? You having a laugh? Jesus says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Notice the parable's use of space here. You know, the younger son was outside, out in the, the foreign land, and now he's come back inside. And this older son has always been inside. He's outside now. He refuses to come back in, refuses to enter the joy and the party and the atmosphere of love and relief that his younger brother's home. He won't do it. He won't go in. And so the father's got a problem on his hands. But the father, you see, has got compassion for his older, his older son too. He's got compassion for both of them. He loves both of them. And he leaves the party 
to go and find him and to plead with him. But look how this son reacts to his dad at this point. He's livid. He doesn't even call him father. Look. Look. All these years, I've been slaving for you. Slaving. And never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He clearly doesn't understand what it means to be this man's son. It's not just working for the father. It's, it's more than that, isn't it? Being a son is relationship. But the anger builds in him. It's all coming out now. Years and years of stuff. It's all just flowing out at this time. He's in full flow now. It's about what he never had. That's what the issue is. I never had that. So I'm going to tell you now. But look how this son then goes on. You know, the, the injustice, the, the comparison. You know, who's your favorite father, dearest? You're going to hear it from me now. You're getting both barrels. He's in full flow. And he goes for the juggler. But when this son of yours, notice he's not long, no longer calling him his brother. When this son of yours, you can't even say the word brother. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. Now, that's a highly emotive lie. Nowhere in the passage does it say that the young lad was sleeping with other women. All right? He's just made it up because he's going for the jugular. You kill the fattened calf for him. The fattened calf that only comes out at special occasions. You, you go and do that for him after all he's done for you. I've never had a goat. And he gets the very best for treating you and all of us like muck. Sometimes we might feel that we've slaved away for God all our lives. We've dutifully served him and his church. We've honored him to the letter. And yet perhaps over the years, our thinking about our relationship with God has got somewhat skewed. We now assume that to please God, we must impress him. Must try harder. Otherwise, God won't love me. But God isn't a head teacher, is he? He's not a heavy-handed boss. He's not like the father we may have grown up trying to please. God loves everyone and will show grace to anyone he pleases. Even those we resent because their relationship with God might, uh, you know, might seem easier, might be more blessed on the surface or more favored by him. Because in our sinfulness, we often compare ourselves with others, don't we? Maybe someone has a ministry within church that you wish you had. And you think they don't deserve that ministry. It should be mine. And therefore your heart's grown hard towards them. And your heart's grown hard towards God. And so like the elder son, you refuse to go into the party. You refuse to enter into the relational atmosphere of joy and grace and sheer relief that we're all God's family. His precious family. Far simpler to remain outside and, and keep doing what you do at church. Just get on with it. Well, if that's you today, God says, come in. Come in. Come into the party of my kingdom. Learn about my grace for other people. Experience it for yourself. My son, my daughter, God says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. God knows 
you and me inside out, doesn't he? He loves your faithfulness. He loves your reliability. He loves your love for the church. He loves how you've dutifully served him over the years. He loves your servant-hearted nature. But there's more. There's always been more if you just asked him for it. We've sung about it earlier. The wine of the kingdom. Come inside. Let's celebrate the wine of the kingdom. The wine of the kingdom of God. Come in, God says to you today. The father ends by saying to the elder son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, remember, he's your brother, not just my son. This brother of yours was dead. But he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. As I said to begin, this parable is not really about these two sons. It's all about the father and his incomparable, wonderful, incredible grace to each one of us. We don't know what became of this family after this parable. Did the elder son come in? Did the younger one really change his ways, or did he go back out traveling again? But on this mothering Sunday, when we consider the parental love of God, a love that goes beyond human gender, this parable is an allegory of our heavenly parent, our Father, and his unconditional love for all humankind, and his free invitation to life with him. So, will we then choose to either come back to him, however long it's been, or to come in and receive that love in a new way? I just want to end with this prayer. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace, and opened the gate of glory. Amen.